Well, welcome to the fourth edition of the M&A podcast. I'm Simon Hattie. I'm a partner in the M&A team. And I'm Tim McEwen. I'm a capital markets partner in the M&A team. And we're going to talk about a couple of takeovers panel developments today, some things that have been kicking around for a while that we've been engaging with and, and having various correspondence with and, and indeed written a few articles out in, in the mainstream press for a, for a refreshing change on. The first of those is going to be to do with uh, the truth in takeovers policy that the panel is looking at, particularly around um, best and final bids and the way that you can be locked out uh, after your bids closed unsuccessfully. Then I'm going to have a look at the most recent developments in the takeovers panel guidance in relation to how rights issues are regulated in Australia, and in particular to ensure that shareholders have an appropriate opportunity to be able to participate in those rights issues as they're undertaken. Good eye. Okay, so let's uh, let's kick off with with truth in takeovers. So, what is truth in takeovers? It's a, it's a policy that the takeovers panel uh, has got that's been supported and implemented by ASIC. That's really about holding people to statements that they make in takeover bids, uh, so that there's um, a degree of ability for people to rely on those, and there's not not misrepresentation uh, around those sorts of things. For example, if a bidder says, this is my best and final offer, I will not extend my bid, or a shareholder says, uh, you know, I, I, I won't accept a bid at this price, then, then the policy of the panel is that people are going to be held to those statements um, and that, that uh, they're not going to be able to depart from them unless they've given certain very specific qualifications and limitations around them. It, it's something that in practice um, helps everyone. It creates a, a greater level of... Um, trust in those statements. It allows people to make those statements and have them be relied on, um, which is kind of what the intention is ultimately. So it puts teeth in those statements, and it means that if people do try to steer away from them, then they can then they can um, be found to be um, you know, in breach of the law and, and forced to comply with with those statements. I mean, I think Tim, you'd agree, it's been a fairly sort of significant and successful part of the uh, of the takeovers regime. I think it's been a great part of enabling takeovers to be properly regulated in Australia without people needing to rush off and change the law on a regular basis, and also for the market to have a clear understanding of what bidders and other participants in the takeover are thinking and ensuring that they'll do the right thing. There have been a few examples recently of bidders who've been um, renowned for making these statements in order to try and get action. Um, CIMIC has had a sort of a series of bids for, for for different targets that it's come along for. Um, McMahon most recently, and it's basically come out with very low conditional bids, um, hit the table very hard and said, look, this is our best and final offer. We won't be increasing, we won't be extending to try and chisel some momentum out of bidders, out of targets, that is, and to try and uh, to try and create action and, and get people to, to sell into the bids and not hold out for a better offer. So they have bidders like Simic and others in, say, you know, Downer and, uh, and its bid for Spotless, now, in, in many instances, they've been successful. Um, the problem that the panel is trying to confront now is the situations where their bid is not as successful as they'd like it to be. Everyone knows that if uh, if a bidder says that you know we won't extend or this is our best and final offer, that you know under the policy they'll be held to that. But strictly speaking, if their bid's not successful and they they close and go away with their tail between their legs, what happens after that? Can they come back with another bid the next day on on better terms or on the same terms? Or is that going to be a breach of the law? And it's it's pretty funny. And Tim and I, you know, you'd agree, Tim. I think that that in general, it's a pretty highly regulated area um, of the law. 
but it's been this weird sort of blank spot um, of fuzzy law as to what actually applies in that situation. It seems genuinely odd with the amount of legislation, policy, commentary from the panel, commentary from participants in the market, that this is an area that hasn't really been clarified in the past. And it's something that there's a lot of commentators... um, seem to think there is this blackout period and, and every time one of these bids closes unsuccessfully there's sort of fevered speculation in in the market as to well um, they'll have to sit on the sidelines for four months before they can come back with another bid or you know can they come back with another bid or is it six months or is it something else and the, the weird thing is that there is no express prohibition in the law or in, in the formal policy that surrounds the law on those things and this is really I think where the where the panel, is trying to to solve for and in some ways and I think what our position has been the duration if there is going to be a, a, a blackout period the duration isn't the most important aspect here what people are looking for is certainty what what people really want to know is if I've made these statements am I really going to be shut out of the market and if so how long that said um, you know maybe a four-month period is the appropriate duration there's a lot of other things that turn on the on the four month on the four month period. And I think, and you'll probably touch on the ability for perhaps to be exceptions in the four-month period, depending on different circumstances arising. But I think you hit on the key issue, and we'll talk about it in the context of rights issues and the panel's guidance on that as well. The market wants certainty, and to allow both participants in takeovers and participants in the market generally to understand what's happening, they need to be able to know what the rules are. I think that's right. And so from our perspective, we've been pretty gratified to see the proposed uh, policy amendments that the panel's come up with, where basically they're they're putting out uh, for consultation a position which says that, in essence, if you've made a a best and final offer statement in your bid and your bid closes unsuccessfully, then for the four months after that, you'll be prohibited from coming back into the market uh, with a bid on improved terms. Um, It's something that, you know, it's, it's struck quite straightforward and it's it's pure. Um, we'll be coming in a minute to some of the potential sort of limitations or rough edges that, that stand around it, but it seems from our perspective to be a pretty neat uh, addition to the policy. And it does, as you say earlier, um, seem odd that in circumstances where a neat answer is available, it hasn't actually been, been adopted and the market hasn't been given the clarity on these issues. So moving, I guess, to, to a position where it is... Um, recognising sort of the substance over form of, of these statements that, that is it really appropriate that theoretically people might be able to get around um, the, the effect of, of these statements um, in a situation where they could just make a, make a bid the, the next day theoretically. We'd also say that it's in bidders' interests to make this change because when you make statements like this, you make them because you want people to rely on them. You want people to be worried that you're not going to be there the next day or the day after and to and to sell into your bid. If they don't trust your statements because they think that there's a backdoor way that you can get around it, then your statements are not going to be uh, received with as much um, validity by the market. That said, I think uh, we'd agree there's a few questions that are still to be uh, answered as part of what the panel's doing leaving aside the question of whether the panel chooses to ultimately adopt this change, which which we hope they do. I think that uh, there's one question which is, well, should should this policy also apply if if you haven't made a you know a best and final statement, but you've made a no extension statement, you've said, this is, uh, my bid will close on a certain date, uh, it will not be extended. 
if you've made a statement to that effect, should you be able to come back with another bid even on the same terms within the four months? Look, it's an interesting question, and I must admit I would probably lean towards the fact that um, this structure should be in place for a no-extension statement the same way it would be for a a general truth and takeovers and and final and last bid statement. But you can see that being an area where perhaps people have different views. I think that's right, and in some ways I think getting the core change through is going to be far more important than sort of trying to push for, for every potential aspect which... Um, sort of continuing into a bit of a spiral of, of regulatory potential reform, which, while well-meaning, can can sometimes mean you end up getting nowhere. But um, while some of these things are nice to have, I think having the core principle embedded is going to be is, is is the key point. Some of the other limitations in these kind of things are: what if there's a big change in circumstances for the target during that four months? Should you still be held to the statement? Um, uh, are there other situations where it should uh, apply? For example, if I'm a prospective bidder and I've made a confidential approach to a, to a target and that gets outed and I make some statement to the effect of, look, I'm not interested in the target, uh, I, I don't propose to make a bid, um, should the policy apply somehow in those circumstances? Should you be forced to stay out of the market for a set amount of time? Again, great things to legislate uh, if we could. But I think um, they're the sort of things where you get a bigger array of opinions and, and legitimate arguments on each side of these things. So um, I don't think getting bogged down in those sort of issues is really going to help us through with the core principle. And I think, in fact, the takeovers panel has proved over a number of issues over a number of years that it's quite capable of dealing with the nuances that can arise from having rules in place. But I think, as Simon says, having the actual principle embedded there people understanding it, to be honest, the panel might have to consider some of these circumstances as they arise, both from a bidder um, and from a target's perspective. I think that's right. Well, fingers crossed we proceed to get this, this change put into the legislation and, uh, and we can continue to put our faith in the panel. We always have faith in the panel. Um, and I think it's um, gratifying to see that the panel is also looking at the same time as, as, as these issues, the potential to amend Guidance Note 17. Guidance Note 17 is the one that relates to rights issues. And while it may well be that a lot of M&A practitioners and people participating in the M&A market don't tend to think of rights issues in the same way, in fact, this is an area which gets a lot of focus from the panel and an area gets a lot of focus from the market. What's the sort of, what's the sort of grief at heart that they're trying to solve in, the, in this sort of issue? Ultimately, the panel is looking to balance some very clear exceptions to the takeovers prohibitions in the Corporations Act where there are the abil- or there is the ability for people to increase their holding through 20% or well past 20% I and mean, they're already over 20% by participating in a rights issue. On the face of it, a rights issue gives everybody the opportunity to participate and if everybody participates, there's no change in anyone's holding. However, that doesn't tend to be the reality of it, particularly in more complicated circumstances where a lot of these rights issues occur. The panel, I think, is trying to walk a fairly fine line between ensuring that there aren't unacceptable circumstances in rights issues and that shareholders aren't uh, missing out on some of the protections which otherwise extend to control circumstances, while at the same time needing to ensure that companies can raise money and, in fact, that they can use an exception that's very clearly contained in the Corporations Act and was intended to allow a control effect to occur where there's a rights issue. 
So what, what are some of the sorts of the dodgier things that have come through that the panel's had to look at on this policy? I think where the ASIC, sorry, I think where the panel gets particularly concerned, and it's true that ASIC gets concerned about it as well, is where these rights issues are structured to benefit an insider or a substantial shareholder, in effect. And often the cases that come, or the matters that come before the panel and which cause the most interest in the media and, and the market most generally relate to large shareholders and companies in some level of distress. And if you structure your rights issue in such a way that it discourages your other shareholders from participating, you have a real chance of delivering control without a control premium, without the other protections set out in Chapter 6, to a major shareholder. And the panel is very conscious of that, as increasingly are minority shareholders who don't want to have these provisions used against them. So what are the general kind of you know, tenants of the policy that have, that have been there that the market's been having to work within? Really, what the market's been trying to work within is, is structuring an offer which is structured appropriately, so considerations given to whether it's renounceable or non-renounceable, considerations being given to price, considerations being given to underwriting arrangements, and in particular consideration being given to what happens to the shortfall. So in circumstances where there is stock available because shareholders haven't chosen to participate, where does that stock go? And to be honest, this dispersion strategy issue is the one that the panel is most concerned with, ensuring that once you get through the issue that the company needs the money, and to be honest, that's usually pretty clear, um, ensuring that there's a strategy that means that all shareholders are given an opportunity to participate um, and, in fact, protect their holding without running the risk that stock is streamed towards a, a major shareholder or someone else who's interested in taking up that stock and getting it at an getting it in an advantageous way in comparison to other shareholders. And, and presumably it's something where there's always going to be a fair bit of grey area in the middle. There's, there's areas where, clearly, as you say, once people... Know, demonstrated that they need the money. There's presumably not just one perfect way that, that is the, uh, the the sainted way that the panel's then going to approve. No, I think that's right. And I think the panel in Guidance Note 17 in the revision is really looking to bring forward in the document just an understanding of what they consider to be the appropriate dispersion strategies, but also give a much clearer statement to the market that where there's a genuine clear need for funds and you structure the rights issue so it does have appropriate dispersion strategies in place, for example, allowing shareholders to take up more than their rights, um, allowing it to be renounceable so shareholders can sell their rights and give other people the opportunity to take them up. That in those circumstances, even if it does have a control effect, that in fact it won't be found to be unacceptable and the company should be able to raise its funds and, and go ahead and do whatever it, else, whatever it is it's choosing to do with those funds. And so do you think there's an actual shortcoming in the policy that, that the panel needs to be fixing with these changes? And do they achieve... Well, what do they achieve? <laughs> I think from discussions with the panel and discussions with clients, I think it's simply a case that it's been an area where there have been so many decisions and so much structuring, including some very high-profile matters such as the various Yan Coal matters and, and others where there have been genuine circumstances, which means companies do need to raise money on the other hand, you don't need them put under even more pressure by the takeovers panel to structure their offers in ways which are arguably overly protective of, of shareholders. Um, I think what the panel is trying to do, and certainly what we would encourage them to do, and um, as set out in the submission we've made to them, is we think it's great for them to clarify these issues, make them easier for people to pick up the guidance note and read, but also have a clear statement of intent that acknowledges 
the exceptions are in the Corporations Act. The panel is happy to try and ensure that they're not abused, but at the same time they're able to be used, and to recognise that if you need the funds and you have an appropriate strategy, it's not unacceptable simply that shareholders can't participate or can't find the funds to participate if the offer's been structured appropriately. I think it actually is great that the panel is reacting to what I would expect is commentary they've received and commentary they've seen in the media and other places which would indicate that it just needs to clarify its position. Um, the guidance note will hopefully be published in, in much the form that was put out. We've suggested it could probably clarify the positions around ensuring that companies can raise funds in these circumstances a bit further. But at the same time, I fully expect that matters will go back before the panel after the new guidance note is in place and some of the similar issues will still be discussed. But I think it also puts the panel in a better position to say, well, no, we don't consider this to be unacceptable and we've told the market and given the market that guidance and in these circumstances, you know, we're still going to find effectively in uh, probably in favour of the company that's raising the money if they have actually put the structure in place. To the, to the points you made earlier around truth in takeovers, there's a real certainty and clarity aspect to these type of revisions where if you're sitting there as a director under some level of pressure needing to raise funds, you want to be able to act in the best interest of your shareholders, but you also want to be able to raise the funds. And some guidance from the panel on what that really means, I think, is of great comfort to boards. And do you reckon there's anything else they should be doing to that policy? I suspect probably not. Um, they could harden their statements a little bit more and, and really direct people off to some of the initial uh, commentary they made back in sort of 2004, 2005 about these exceptions existing. Um, but I, I suspect on balance this is, this is getting to the right place. And I'd say I think it is good of the panel to effectively consider the issues that have come before them recently, consider the decisions they've given and then try to put it out rather than allowing or rather than requiring people to go and read all the decisions and perhaps draw their own conclusions from it. Excellent. Well, I think, uh, I think that takes us to the end of today's podcast. We've had two panel, dis- two panel guidance items which we think are good things, so hopefully they, they continue to, to progress and, and get adopted. So we'll be watching the space with interest. Thanks a lot. Thank you. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes or SoundCloud and visit our website herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.